We're going to be taking a look again today at the book of Revelation. As we are over halfway there now to the end, the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 12 today. Uh, if you want to use one of the Bibles on the pew rack, that's on page 1034. Well, we've been looking at Revelation now for, for a little while. You know, John, the Apostle John, wrote Revelation, and he was the last apostle alive when he wrote this. Jesus came to him in a vision and said, John, write everything down, I'm going to show you. It's going to be a prophecy about the end times. And so John undertook that. God began to show him some things, showed him the throne room of God, and that took a couple of chapters just to, to describe that at, at, at you know, minimal uh, ways he could. Uh, and then things began to happen. God in heaven had this scroll in his hand, and the scroll was sealed up seven times. And Jesus came out and broke open each one of those seals. And every time one of the seals was broken, something happened. A judgment came about. Uh, the goal of the judgments all while was to help people recognize their need for a Savior. So that when Jesus came to the seventh seal on that scroll that needed to be opened, uh, seven angels came out, received a trumpet each, and as they were blowing their trumpets, more judgment happened. Again, trying to bring more people to the understanding of salvation. And as those trumpets were blown, these, these judgments are happening. Uh, last week, we ended with the seventh trumpet being blown, but we didn't get to see yet what happens when the seventh trumpet is blown. We didn't see the judgment that takes place, because What's going to happen here in the middle of the book of Revelation before we see what, what judgment takes place with trumpet number seven is there's going to be like a little parentheses. We're going to get a glimpse here for a few chapters of all the players taking, you know, taking part in the end times. So we had the seven seal judgments. We had the trumpet judgments without seeing the seventh trumpet judgment yet. But we're going to begin to see some of the people who are involved in the end times. Uh, Antichrist is one of them in the midst of these things. Satan is another key player. We're going to get a description uh, of him and his history here. And so right here in the middle, it, it is like a, an aside that John begins to describe some of the people involved in the end of the world. So let's look at the first one of these. Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. So this woman here, we have this woman, she's pregnant, she's giving birth, she's wearing a crown with twelve stars. Uh, now we believe that to be an indicator of Israel, an indicator of the followers of, of God, of believers um, here. And she's giving birth. That's going to be important for something that happens in a minute. Uh, she's set in a position here that defines her role specifically. Um, and this imagery of giving birth in this way to, we're going to find out in a second, to a son, to the Messiah, to Jesus, uh, this is from a couple of prophecies in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66 and Isaiah 26. Uh, this woman being Israel, uh, the believers giving birth to the Messiah. 
the, the imagery there from those prophecies is that the people could not bring salvation about under their own systems. All that they could do was give birth to the one who would bring about salvation in Jesus. So look at verse 3. So while this is taking place, all, it's all taking place. Again, John's seeing this in a vision, so this it's, it's is prophecy of the end times. It's figurative of what's happening here. Um, you got a woman, representative of the believers of Israel, uh, giving birth to Jesus. Uh, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. Now, each one of these elements represents something. The imagery isn't that in the end times there is going to be this giant woman giving birth and there's going to be this giant dragon with seven heads and ten horns. It's all representative of something. So let's look at that in verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So this dragon wants to kill the child of the woman who is Jesus. The, the, the child is Jesus. And so the dragon wants to kill Jesus. He has seven heads, uh, many points of strength as indicated by the ten horns, his show of strength, used with strength imagery. But what is unique to the book of Revelation is the number ten. Numbers are important all throughout scripture, the number three, number seven, number forty. Uh, but the number 10 is very unique because it is singularly associated in the book of Revelation with evil. The number 10 is. And so here, this dragon has 10 horns. So his evil strength, 10, uh, horns being strength, um, uh, he is, is an enemy of God. And, uh, uh, his evil is so personified that he is an enemy of of God. He's got seven crowns, so he has great power, great authority here. Uh, the book of Daniel, Daniel gets a prophecy about a similar beast described in a very similar way. We're actually going to find out in just a few verses this dragon is Satan himself. So Satan is there. Satan is the dragon. Satan wants to kill Jesus, and he takes his tail, and it says he swipes down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, which is unique. Some people think that is Satan um, taking a third of the angels with him when he defected from heaven. Uh, scripture never actually says that in any, other, any place. I mean, even here, uh, people are drawing conclusions, making deductions. Uh, we do actually have a third of the stars of heaven being knocked out a few chapters before this. God did it in one of the judgments, wiped out. A third of the stars of heaven, decreasing their light, removing a third of the light of the night. Because what you're going to see about Satan, you see him throughout scripture, but especially here in the book of Revelation, is Satan is always trying to imitate God. Satan is always trying to do what God did to get people to follow him. And so here, Satan is imitating what God is, has done. He's God took a third of the light of the night, a third of the stars was the, the language, and now we see Satan doing the exact same thing, trying to imitate God, take God's power, God's authority to deceive the people of the earth. And so Satan is poised to kill the child of salvation, 
that is coming from Israel, Jesus. Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a prophecy from the book of Psalms, uh, chapter 2, about the Messiah ruling with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, that's a unique phrasing. We've seen that in the book of Revelation. We're going to see it some more. Uh, it's 1,260 days is also called in the book of Revelation 42 months. It's also called three and a half years, which is half of the perfect number seven. So she is going to be nourished, taken care of, provided for by God by, for half of the complete number seven here. Um, she's going to be hidden for this amount of time. And this description of 1,260 days is also from the previous chapter. The same number of days that the two witnesses that will be prophesying and preaching and sharing the gospel uh, will be doing that for 1,260 days. That language is from chapter 11, verse 3. Look at verse 7 here of chapter 12. So all this is taking place, right? Before we get to verse 7, I want to just put it in perspective. These first six verses, these are just a couple of the character, uh, players, and then we're going to get into some description of the dragon. You've got Israel giving birth to the Messiah, Satan trying to kill the Messiah, God protecting, not just protecting Jesus in his life and then his death and resurrection, God protecting the woman, protecting Israel for a period of time. And so now what we're going to get in this next section, having just been described, given a description of uh, Israel, given a description of Jesus, given a, a preliminary description of Satan, we're going to get some background info on Satan. Verse 7, we get a time jump back to the beginning. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So Satan tries to, tries to overthrow God. Now notice, God doesn't even enter the fight. He allows Michael, who we learn from other passages of Scripture, uh, particularly the book of Daniel. He's also mentioned in the book of jo, uh, Jude. Um, uh, Michael, we believe, was the, the leader of the heavenly host, of the heavenly armies. And so, he, so God sends out Michael with the angels to fight against Satan and Satan's angels, it says. And they're no match for Michael and his angels without even God entering the battle. God, I mean, if God entered the battle, it would be all over. There's no question. But Satan tries to fight, tries to defeat. Michael and his angels defeat him, and Satan is cast out. He's uh, evicted from his place in heaven. That's why we believe this takes place at the beginning because Satan no longer has a place in heaven. We're going to see later on in the book of Revelation, he's got a place prepared for him, and it's not heavenly. And so he's thrown down. He was defeated. No longer a place found for him in heaven. They've all, all Satan and his angels have lost their place in heaven. Now look at verse 9. This is where we find out his identity. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. 
For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night. Now this Satan falling to earth, this is described uh, in a way that is very, very similar, um, almost word for word, uh, to the description we get of Satan being cast down, or being or falling out of heaven back in chapter 9. He comes down with the keys to open the bottomless pit uh, there. And this is that same kind of description here. Uh, he, he's thrown down to heaven, or thrown down from heaven to earth. Um, yeah, it's also very significant in that the angel saying this in verse 10, or a loud voice from the angel, uh, calls us Christians there in verse 10, calls us brothers, brothers and sisters, family, that we are, we are all ministering to God equally. Obviously, we're different from angels. We're, we're, that's talked about in Scripture. Uh, but we're called brothers and sisters here by this angel because of the service that we all pay to the king. It's all different. We all serve God differently. But it's all still service. It's all still worship to God. This is a, really, honestly, this is a song of victory. A victory over Satan. Victory won over Satan. Um, so we don't need to look in anticipation of a victory coming. The victory has already taken place. We're just awaiting its realization. Look at verse 11. Still talking about Christians. Still this angel talking about us. He says, They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. So right off the bat there, verse 11, the believers have conquered, they have overcome. That's past tense. They overcame in the past the onslaught of Satan. Um, they love the gospel more than they love their physical lives. But we see there, he says, woe to you, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. So his great wrath is because he knows he only has a limited amount of time. And so his effort is to try to take as many down with him as possible. So he's going to do everything he can from his great arsenal of, of strategies he's developed over millennia to try to tempt humanity away from God. He's going to tempt Christians. He's going to tempt non-Christians. He's going to do everything he can to try to, in his effort, lessen God's glory by preventing as many people as possible from going to heaven. That's his ultimate goal. And so he's going to throw everything he has at us to try to make that goal possible. All because he knows he's running out of time. And so look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, the believers, Israel, at that point. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. And that's, that, those last few words, that's really old language to describe a year. A time being one year, times being two years. So that being three and a half years. Again, the same length of time it's been mentioning the whole time. Half of seven, three and a half years, uh, 42 months, 1,260 days. It all means the same thing. 
So she's going to be, again, protected, just like uh, the description of her being nourished and protected was already described back in verse 6. It's here described again uh, in verse uh, 14. Look at verse 15. So in response to the woman being protected, the serpent poured water like a river from his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. So Satan throws some kind of evil after the woman. Water like a flood. Remember, that's that language uh, that is used often in Scripture, that they're seeing something, trying to describe it to us. So he says this, this water, this liquid is flowing from the dragon, from Satan, trying to kill uh, the woman, Israel, uh, the believers at that point, and he's unable. It says that the earth opens up and swallows that evil up, preventing uh, the, the enemy's efforts from succeeding. Uh, there is a reference back in Exodus chapter 15 uh, in Moses' song about the earth opening up um, and uh, uh, swallowing the evil that was pursuing the Israelites. So whether I, you know, this is figurative or literal, some people believe it's literal, um, I tend to believe it's figurative here. Uh, the point is Satan is, is going to try, he has tried to kill believers even back when the only believers were the Israelites and the Jews in the Old Testament, he's going to continue to try to kill believers uh, from then on through to now. Um, and God's going to protect them, sometimes through unconventional means, like the earth opening up and swallowing that evil. Look at verse 17. So Israel's been protected for a period of time, it said, uh, back in verse 14 and verse 6. And so now in verse uh, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So Satan becomes furious that God protected Israel for a little while. And so he goes off to make war, it says, with the rest of her offspring, with the offspring of Israel. Paul describes that, the offspring of Israel, being believers. Descendants of Abraham are really those who have faith, those who believe, is what Paul says in the book of Romans. And so here, he gets furious at God's protection, and so now he's going to start attacking Christians, those who keep the commandments, which ultimately is holding to the testimony of Jesus, believing the gospel. And so uh, he's going to start attacking us, which he has been now for 2,000 years. And then we get a little line that's going to lead into the next chapter. He's standing on the sand of the seas. He's anticipating something about to happen. This is a part of Satan's strategy here, okay? He's, he's making war on Christians, persecution as much as he can throughout history. And he's standing on the sand of the seas preparing to bring the next level of his persecution to be. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. Does that sound familiar? Ten horns, seven heads. That's the same description that we had of the dragon. Seven heads, ten horns. Uh, but there's a little bit different here. He has ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. 
Its feet were like a bear's, its mouth like a lion's mouth. That's a description from the book of Daniel about beasts coming at the end. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So this beast comes out of the sea, mirroring the image of Satan. So just like Satan has tried so often to mirror God so that he can try to steal people away, now Satan is bringing out this beast and giving him some of his own characteristics, uh, giving this beast some of his own uh, characteristics. He's got seven heads and ten horns, just like Satan. Uh, But the beast is given ten crowns, whereas Satan only had seven. So he's given uh, a little, uh, you know, a demonstration of great, a greater authority, at least. And the crowns are resting on the horns, the horns being the strength, uh, demonstrating the power of the beast here rests on, the, on his strength. You know, the, the, the crowns are on the horns, the horns are the strength, the crowns are the authority. So his authority, his power is based on his strength, on his, uh, the force that he has. Maybe he's going to come as a conqueror and conquer the world, uh, however it is, this beast with his horns and his crowns. But it also says he's got blasphemous names written all over his heads, all over his face, faces. He's got multiple heads. So his anti-God stance will be overt in that it will be blasphemous, and it will be available for everyone to see. It will be very obvious that this beast is against God. And we see that his power comes straight from the dragon, from Satan. Now, I'll just give you a preview. Um, this beast is this beast out of the sea, the sea beast, is often described as the Antichrist. Or the system, the world system, the Antichrist comes and puts in place. So whether it's the system as a whole or it's an individual, either way, uh, this beast, this is representative of the Antichrist. At the end times here. Uh, Look at verse 3. On one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? Now, several things here. First off, it says that the beast had one of its heads appeared as though it had been slain, which is the exact same language that we get earlier in the book of Revelation describing Jesus. The lamb came on the scene as though it had been slain. And so again, the beast is trying to imitate God, trying to imitate Jesus, appearing to be wounded to the point of death, and he is healed. And people begin to worship the beast. And in worshiping the beast, they're worshiping Satan because the beast gets all of his power, all of his authority from Satan himself. And so they say, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? This is worship-filled language from the Old Testament, from the book of Exodus chapter 15, Psalm 35, talking about God. It says, who is like the Lord? Oh Lord, who is like you? So again, Satan trying to usurp God's authority, God's place, God's worship in how people are going to address this sea beast, Satan's sea beast. And so the world is amazed at this sea beast, resulting in worship of himself, worship of Satan, because the beast's power comes from Satan. And really, 
Satan actually says back in Isaiah, um, maybe chapter 4, I think it's Isaiah 14. Uh, there's a description uh, of Satan and, and what he says in, uh, when he's cast out of heaven. Satan wants the worship of God. Satan says it. He says, I will make myself like the Most High. Out of his mouth, that is his goal. He says, I want to make myself like the Most High. Satan thinks he can be a better God than God. And so he's trying to do that here in bringing his sea beast on the scene. Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 1,260 days, three and a half years, half of seven. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So the beast is given a mouth to do all this. Uh, he doesn't have authority in himself. He's allowed to do this. His power comes from Satan, but Satan and the sea beast are both allowed to do this by God. They have a cap on how much they're allowed to do. They're only allowed to do so much. And he goes out and he says he utters blasphemies against God, against God's name, and against God's dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. The dwelling of God is his people because we are the temple of God. And so he's going out and he's setting himself up against God and against us believers. Uh, so not only does he have blasphemies all over his face so that everyone can see he's actually saying it and putting it out there being anti-god in every possible way um, but even in the midst of all these atrocities these things he's saying things he's going to do he's still limited in how far he can go and how much he can do there's only so much god allows him to do uh, look at verse seven also it was allowed, so again, there's that language. It was allowed to make war on the saints. So he could only do so much. He was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And all authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So... The Antichrist, the sea beast, makes war on Christians and conquers them. And he's given authority over the whole world. Remember, his, his, his authority rests on his strength, his crowns on his horns. And so some, he's going to conquer everything. He's going to have authority over the whole world and declare war on Christians, which certain countries around the world, it is still, it's illegal now. It has been throughout history as well at certain times. Illegal to be a Christian. And he's going to make war on Christians. Uh, and authority is given him over all of these places. Um, and the world, unbelievers, the world, the unbelievers, all who dwell on the earth, who are not Christians, who, who are not having the war made on them, uh, it says, will worship the beast, which we know worshiping the beast means worshiping Satan because the beast gets his authority from Satan. And so uh, there will be worship, almost like a, a sea beast religion going on here, how much they venerate the sea beast. And it may not be straight up sea beast churches popping up all over the place. The worship of the sea beast, of the Antichrist, uh, may be in the amount of attention that's given by each individual to the sea beast because attention is worship. Maybe how much money is given 
Because money can be worship, can, can demonstrate worship. It could be an investment of time given to the sea beast. You know, a lot of people today may not set up a church as we do of worshiping God, but a lot of people still worship politics or even individual politicians and how much time they attribute in their mind to that politician or that politician's stance or defending that politician more so even than they do defending the Lord and speaking of the gospel. That politician lives in their mind more than God does. And so maybe it's that. We don't know how it's going to play out, how this worship will be demonstrated. But in whatever capacity it's demonstrated, it will be worship. No denying it. They will worship this individual. They will worship this system. And by association, they will be worshiping Satan without even realizing it. Because of the evil that's there. And this antichrist, this war he invokes on Christians, whether it's straight open war, whether it's subversive, whether it's over a period of time enacting laws that make it not just difficult to be a Christian but straight illegal, it's going to happen. And it's coming in some capacity. And so look at verse uh, 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to, take, to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So there's going to be widespread captivity of Christians, widespread executions of Christians. It's being slain. But we're being encouraged in the midst of all this persecution and difficulty to endure, to grow in our faith. Says This is a call to endure. This is a call to persevere. This is a call to encourage each other and stick it out and don't give up and keep moving forward. Stop fighting each other and start going forward into what God has for us. He says this is a call for all of that. See the reality of who the real enemy is. Look at verse 11. There's another person to come on the scene. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So we had the sea beast, who was like the Antichrist. Now we've got a land beast coming up, having two horns like a lamb. Again, the lamb, Jesus. He has two horns, not like Satan, who had... Uh, uh, Satan and the sea beast have seven horns, their strength. This lamb, this uh, land beast, only has two horns. So he doesn't have like the full amount of strength as like the sea beast or like Satan. But he's still got a significant amount of strength. And how does he speak? He speaks like a dragon. And who's the dragon? Satan. So he speaks with the voice of Satan. The sea beast came out of the sea, was given the authority and the power and the strength of Satan. This land beast is given the voice of Satan. So where the sea beast is called the Antichrist, this beast is actually given a name later on in the book of Revelation. He's called the false prophet. This beast, this land beast is called the false prophet who comes up here. Because look at what he does, verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. 
That's also unique. In his presence, it does the authority. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So that, that phrase is brought up again, his mortal wound, that he was, appeared to be dead as though slain and he is healed. He's brought back to life, uh, so to speak. And so this false prophet, this land beast, is pointing everyone to worship the sea beast. Verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. So again, he's imitating the miracles of God. He's imitating the miracles of God. He performs great signs. That's a description of the miracles of Jesus, the signs of Jesus. And he's making fire come down from heaven. That is, is a miracle God did all throughout the Old Testament with his prophets. Fire shooting down from heaven, possibly lightning, uh, on command. Uh, he, and this, this false prophet is doing that. He's imitating God's power, God's miracles to make people worship the sea beast, which means they're worshiping Satan. So it's all trying to take worship away from Almighty God. Uh, verse 13, or 14. And by the signs that it, was, that it is allowed, there's that phrase again, it's allowed to do this, by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So this false prophet, this land beast, is going to somehow have the authority to go out and create an idol, an idol of the sea beast, the Antichrist. Now again, we don't know if that's like a, a massive statue that people are going to bow down and worship. More likely, that's again, figurative language, talking about attention and money and time uh, that, to worship this image um, of the sea beast, of the Antichrist. And it will become illegal to not worship the sea beast in this way. That those who do not worship the image of the beast will be slain. Which is also another reminder from the book of Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not worshiping the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so they were thrown in the fiery furnace. And they were saved in, from the fiery furnace. And so it's a very similar to what's happening here. Uh, the false prophet will create this image, somehow uh, give breath to the image of the beast. Again, that language replicates the language of God giving breath to humanity back in the book of Genesis. He breathed into them the breath of life. So this land beast is going to give uh, uh, the breath of life, so to speak, to this image, however that is. And... Um, people are going to have to worship it, and if they don't worship it, they're going to die. Um, there's all kinds of things that could be said about inanimate objects being able to speak. Uh, maybe you speak to it, and it speaks back to you in some capacity. Uh, you, you may say some key phrase, and it speaks back to you. I don't know. Um, and it's going to speak to you and I'll bring more worship to the Antichrist in, in some way, bring him attention. Look at verse 16. Again, still talking about the false prophet and the image. And it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked 
on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, this is important before we get to the last verse. So every person that's going to become law is going to have to have some kind of recognizing, recognizable mark in order to be able to buy and sell, to go to the store and buy and sell. In the same way, you know, if you buy and sell online, you've got to have, uh, you know, a username and password and your credit card. You, you're going to have some, kind of have to have some kind of recognizable mark here. Now, it, it describes it being on your forehand, very visible, or on your forehead, I mean on your hand, or on your forehead. Uh, very visible, very obvious. But that language has already been in the book of Revelation. That God's going to mark his people on their heads, on their foreheads. And it's going to be, again, later on, the, the people who follow God are going to receive the name of God on their forehead. Uh, it's a recognizable thing everybody's going to see on their face. Uh, whether It's probably not a literal, you know, marking, tattoo on their head kind of thing. Uh, but on their head means everyone can see it can see their affiliation, can see their association, can see their allegiance there. And so he's imitating again here what God has done in claiming his people by sealing them on their heads. And so he's going to do that, the enemy, through his beast, sea beast, through his false prophet, the land beast, uh, through the image, making it law. You've got to have a recognizable mark of the, the sea beast in order to buy and sell. But notice, I want to point this out, uh, there in verse 17, you have the name of the beast or the number of the beast's name. So just think about that for a second, because it'll get confusing in the, in the next verse if you don't focus on this. It says the number of the beast's name or the number, um, or, so it's either the name of the beast or the number of the beast's name. And you'll see why I'm emphasizing that, verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate, figure out the number of the beast. So the last verse has said the, the number of, uh, what does it say? Uh, the name of the beast or the number of the beast's name. And now here in verse 18 it says the number of the beast. So not the number of the beast's name that's going to be, you know, figuratively imprinted on the hands and foreheads. For it is the number of man. So the number of the beast is the number of man, and his number is 666. So I just want to be clear, what these verses are saying is just, he's not talking about 666 being imprinted on people's heads and hands, because the number 666, he says, is the number of man, which is the number of the beast. And in verse 17, when he says what will be imprinted is either the name or the number of the name. So the two different things, verse 17 and 18, are talking about here. Um, but I still believe it's figurative. But anyway, it says the, the number of the beast, 666, it says is the number of man, which leads us to believe the number of the sea, the sea beast is going to be an individual person, the Antichrist, because his number is 666, which is the number of all of us. That is the number short of absolute perfection, which is 777. So we have all fallen short of the glory of God. So he's got this number. Now, throughout history, some people have tried to figure out when it says, calculate the number of the beast, well, it gives us the number of the beast, 666. So we don't have to calculate the number because it gives it to us right there. But some people have, have combined verses 17 and 18 throughout history. When verse 17 talks about the name of the beast and 18 talks about the number of the beast. 
And they've tried to say 666 somehow can be calculated to figure out the beast's actual name. And so when you see somebody with that name, you got to be wary because they're the Antichrist. Uh, and there, I can give you the, it's a very old superstition. It was not prevalent in first century church whatsoever. Uh, but there is a very old superstition that you can do to try to, you know, say, well, the, you know, the first uh, uh, nine numbers in a, uh, the, or the first nine letters in the alphabet can be represented by certain numbers in, in a string of numbers, and the next ten can be representative of this. Uh, but if you really break down that superstition, and I looked at it um, this week, there are innumerable number of ways you can take that to pretty much spell whatever you want it to spell. Uh, some people later on try to get it to spell Nero, like, you know, the Caesar. Try to get it to spell Nero. Some people try to get it to spell different, <laughs> some Americans have tried to get it to spell different presidents throughout history, depending on if they liked him or not. Um, you can calculate it to really figure out whatever you want. Um, but all that to say, that kind of thing is superstition and not biblical. It has nothing to do in Scripture. We're never given the, the name of the Antichrist. We're not even told if it, if it is an individual person. It could be a world system. All that we're told is this thing's going to come. It's going to be anti-God, anti-Christian. There's going to be great persecution that breaks out. And what we're told, though, in that is to persevere in our faith. We're not told to spend undying amounts of hours trying to figure out the name of the Antichrist. We're not. That's a waste of time. We're told in that verse, calculate the number of the beast, and then he tells us what the number is. It's like, have you ever tried to help your kid with the homework, try to get your kid to get there, and they're not getting there fast enough, so you just give them the answer? I'm not saying any of you have ever done that. But it's like here, he's telling us, calculate the number of the beast. Oh, and by the way, his number is 666. It's like, you don't have to do the math. I'm just going to give you the number right here. And so you look at all of this. I mean, taking verse, chapters 12 and 13 together, and you're seeing these people who are on the scene, and we're going to see some more um, in the coming chapters, it really seems kind of hopeless and scary that all this is going to take place and Christianity is going to be outlawed and you can't go to the store and buy something if you don't have this, this mark on you that allows you to buy something at the store. You won't have this mark to buy something online. And if you go to the store and you don't have the mark, they're going to arrest you and execute you because you're a Christian. Obviously, you don't have the mark and you're not going to take the mark because you are a Christian. This is going to be a scary time. And it seems overwhelming and almost hopeless. Except if you go back to chapter 12, what we read a little bit earlier. When Satan is thrown down, he accuses them day and night, is thrown down. Look at verse 11. It says, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they have not loved their lives even unto death. So there is the victory strategy already. Before any of the rest of this is described, before, before the war breaks out from uh, you know, the sea beast uh, uh, making it illegal here with his false prophet to be a Christian. It says we already have conquered. We already have victory. Christians are victorious over Satan for two things in that verse. The blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So the sacrifice of Jesus, blood of the lamb, word of their testimony, the communication of the gospel, the sacrifice of Jesus and our public affiliation with him. The word of their testimony. Our public affiliation with Jesus. I mean, Jesus said in Matthew 10, if you acknowledge me before people, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. 
In the next verse, he says, you deny me before people. I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Because if we are truly associated with Jesus, there's no way to deny him. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of salvation. The power of salvation is in the gospel. So to not be ashamed is to publicly affiliate yourself with Jesus, even if that means persecution, even if that means difficulty. And that verse says, all the way up to death. So everything in our lives needs to point to Jesus. We can't love the stuff in our lives more than we love Jesus. His description of these Christians here in chapter 12 is that they loved Jesus more than their very lives. So everything included in their lives, they loved Jesus more. There wasn't anything they possessed, anything that took up their time, anything they did for a job, anything that entertained them. There wasn't one thing they loved more than Jesus. That's why they were willing to give it all up, all the way to the point of their death. So just like Jesus, these people, their sacrifice of giving everything, their sacrifice was motivated by love because they loved Jesus more. They were imitating Jesus' love, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That was the, the, the impetus, that was the instigation for our salvation was love. And so they, these people, these Christians were imitating the love of Jesus and that brought on their sacrifice naturally because they were imitating the love of Jesus. So to love like Jesus, we must sacrifice like Jesus. If we're not sacrificing like Jesus, we're not loving like Jesus. To love like Jesus, we've got to sacrifice like Jesus. These Christians described in Revelation chapter 12 were willing to sacrifice anything because Jesus sacrificed everything. But the truth of the matter is, us Christians today, I mean, just being self-confessional, we've become so comfortable that we've really got a cap on what we're willing to sacrifice, on how much we're willing to give up and surrender to the Lord. I mean, are we willing to sacrifice? I mean, Paul gives a description. I read it this morning in my quiet time. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, I want to say. First Corinthians, it may be 13. It's 13 or 14. 1 Corinthians 13 or 14. Um, that he's willing to sacrifice anything for the gospel. Anything. Willing to sacrifice certain kinds of food for the gospel. Willing to sacrifice reputation for the gospel, willing to sacrifice time for the gospel, willing to sacrifice sleep so they can get up and spend time with the gospel, willing to sacrifice uh, uh, binging certain shows for the gospel, willing to sacrifice going to see certain movies for the gospel because maybe those movies are investing things into you that don't need to be in you. Maybe you ever think about that. You say, oh, it's just, you know, it's just some words or it's just some violence or, or, or it's just some inappropriate, you know, stuff going on on screen. You know, I can handle it. I can, I, I, I can handle it. You know, that phrase, I can handle it, has been implanted in our brains by the enemy. It's a subtle deception. Because we may be able to handle one, but what happens is you go one, you go another one. You go another one. You begin to ingest more, ingest more. And before long, you're further away from the Lord than you ever thought possible. Because all it, it all starts with one. And it drags you in a way you don't need to go. You don't need to be. 
Are you willing to sacrifice going to see those movies on the altar for Jesus? I know some people aren't. I've had conversations with them. It's, oh, it's not that big a deal. I, go, I, go and, I, I can handle it, and I'm going to take my eight-year-old kid and go and see it too. don't know if that's okay. We had, there was a lady one time, she couldn't figure out, and this kid was four and a half. She couldn't figure out why her four and a half was not sleeping and was screaming during the day and acting up. Turns out they had watched a rated R horror movie a few nights ago, and the four and a half year old was sitting on the couch with them. That's the reason right there. Let's, let's backtrack it. Uh, and there's a behavioral deal that links back to that issue. And, uh, I mean, the lady was overwhelmed and apologetic and uh, mind-blown because of the this, this situation. Um, and I uh, prayed with her and sent her on her way. Uh, but to love like Jesus, we've got to sacrifice like Jesus. That may mean giving up certain things. Because the, quest, the question shouldn't be, you know, can I handle this or can I not handle this? The, the, the reality of the question is, does this thing, this, this thing I'm engaged in, this thing I'm watching, this thing I'm doing, this thing, uh, this, this situation, the circumstance, does this help me love like Jesus? Does this make me better? It, does this help me in my journey to become more like Jesus? fact of the matter is, everything we do and say and are part of and allow to be in our lives and influence us, everything either draws us closer to Jesus or further away. There's no neutral space. And so if we're going to love like Jesus, if we're going to imitate the love of Jesus, there has to be some things that don't make the cut. That don't make the cut. I, <coughs> I think about it in terms of like, I was thinking the other day about the Olympics. You know, we're always just you know, having Olympics go away or just coming up. I uh, got some Olympics coming up. And uh, the Olympic athletes, when they're training for the Olympics, everything is about the Olympics. Everything is about training. Everything they do, all of their time, how much sleep they get, all the food they go, that goes in their mouth is all about fueling their, their training. Even the stuff that they watch, even the stuff that they listen to, music, the friends they allow into their lives, all of it is consumed. How is this going to affect my mind so that I can train better? And if it doesn't make them better, they cut it, at least for that period of training, so they can be better. Everything is cut because it's all about the training. It's all about the goal of getting the gold medal. But for us Christians, we don't often think that way. We allow so much influence in our lives to hamper our spiritual development Stuff that's not, and I do this all the time too, that's not a help. I mean, we doom scroll until we're doomed. <laughs> and it messes us up. You ever get done scrolling with whatever social media app and you end up not thinking, remembering anything that you just looked at and you feel worse after you did it? Not that it was just necessarily evil and bad and wicked, but you just, it didn't help you at all and you just feel worse after you did it. Uh, Everything is supposed to point to Jesus and help us get closer to Jesus. Paul said, it was in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Every, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Some translations say beneficial. Not all things are beneficial. I've asked myself that question these last few weeks uh, when, when I've been praying about certain things or do, wanting to do certain things. Is this beneficial to me? 
Is this beneficial? Is this helpful in my spiritual walk, in trying to help me imitate Jesus? Is this thing helpful? And I guarantee you, at least this has been my experience, when I get, you know, there's a lot of things that we can by default say, yeah, that's not helpful at all. I know I'm not supposed to do that because that's not helpful. But in my experience, when I get down and I ask Jesus, is this helpful in my spiritual walk, it's, usually, it's almost every time not. I only ask Jesus if it's helpful if it's not clear if it's helpful or not. You know, it's like when, I, when my kids and we're cleaning up and, you know, cleaning out, trying to throw stuff away. I say, if you have to come and ask me if you want to throw it away, just throw it away. Like, don't even ask. Because my immediate response is going to be, yes, throw it away. It's like I'm the terrible, uh, you don't want to have me at your garage sale running the money. Because if somebody says, can I have this for a quarter, I'm just going to say yes. Because my goal at the garage sale is not to make money. My goal at the garage sale is to get rid of stuff. So you want the whole yard for a dollar? It's yours. Like, take it. I'll help you load it. I'll give you a dollar if you get it out of my house. Uh, just Maybe it'll break and we can just throw it away while we're loading it. Uh, it it's, is this thing helpful? No, then we've got to cut it. We got, it's it's got to go if it's not helpful. It's, it, it's got to go if it's not helpful. Uh, there's two guys I've got quoted on, on Post-it notes in my office. Uh, one of them talks about um, hurry being the enemy of your spiritual life. And uh, I believe it was Dallas Willard, or no, it was, it was either, it was Dallas Willard, I think, who said, uh, in order to gr- develop spiritually the way God intends us to, we must employ the ruthless elimination of hurry. The ruthless elimination of hurry. It needs to be the ruthless elimination of anything that would prevent us from Jesus, prevent us from being who Jesus designed us to be. Sacrifice it. Jesus gave up his life. The description of these Christians in Revelation chapter 12 is is this kind of Jesus-level sacrifice. Everything cut for the sake of Christ. Is it helpful? Because if it's not, why am I doing it? Why am I doing it? So what would your life look like right now if you gave and sacrificed for Jesus to the same degree that he sacrificed for you? What would your life look like if you sacrificed to the same degree that he sacrificed for you? Because do you know Jesus did sacrifice for you, and he sacrificed for you because he loves you. Will you imitate him today? Imitate him in his love. Imitate him in his sacrifice. Imitate him in... in, willingly obeying the Lord, will you believe in Jesus today? Believe Jesus, God's son died, so all your sins would be forgiven. Believe that he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Find salvation, find strength, find hope, find protection, find peace in Jesus. Believe in Jesus today. Imitate Jesus today.